Good evening and welcome to the Election Nerds New South Wales State Election Special. I'm Dr Stuart Jackson and joining me tonight as my co-host is Dr Amanda Elliott. We're from the University of Sydney. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Are you Stuart. excited? Oh, I'm very excited. I've got a little thrill. I always do on election days, like going in, exercising my democratic rights, even, you know, for one brief moment, I kind of feel the shining light of democracy. You <laughs> trip you? over the people, you stagger in there, you yeah. fight your way past the sausage sizzle, the cake stalls and the empty Coke cans because people have already been there before you. Well, absolutely. Although I have to say, I don't get a sausage sizzle. I My closest polling station is a town hall and nobody puts on a sausage sizzle and I keep forgetting. And so every year I go... Not every year, but every time I vote, I go to the town hall and vote, and then I'm like, there's no sausage. You don't have the app. You need the sausage sizzle app. Is there an app now? There is an app for, there's an app that I've heard. You know, I use dumb phones, so, you know, what would I know? (laughs) But there is an app you can get for your sausage sizzle. Election day sausage sizzle. Election day sausage sizzle app. I think Ben knows about it. We have in here. Ben, I haven't even introduced you yet, Ben, but Ben's joining us today. We were do- on This morning on Backchat, we were doing talkback about sausage sizzles and people were calling up and complaining that their booth didn't have one and we were then pointing them to the closest booth that did, which I think is an important public service. Absolutely. Overrate, um, overlooked. If only I'd known. There you go. Oh, yeah. You could have got a sausage I could have after sausage, all. got a sausage sizzle. So, introduce us to the show, Amanda. Oh, I will. Thanks, Stuart. Welcome to our Election Nerds New South Wales special. We have a jam-packed and very exciting show tonight. Uh, we'll be on air for a couple of hours with Ben Rao joining us uh, with live results all through the evening. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> and also joining us are some of our favourite guests and some new faces to us, but voices to you, I guess, our listeners, from Sydney University... The University of Technology, Sydney, Macquarie Uni and UNSW. And our guest is a long list. Dr Peter Chen, Dr Lloyd Cox, James Goodman, Anna Kagawa, Robert McNeil, Gilge Merrim, Stephen Mills, Mark Rolfe, Colin Wright. Doctors, all of them. As Any I doctors. understand, we're it. all doctors. Oh, we're all doctors. So I, so I dropped we made the ben doctors. An doctor, so it's we all did right. that last time, so I think that just continues. We'll be bringing you the background to the New South Wales election, examining the campaign in a bit of detail discussing some of the big policy issues like the economy and the environment and discussing the upper house uh, in a bit of detail as well. Also throughout the evening, we'll be discussing elections around the world with some discussion of recent ele- the recent election in Israel and the upcoming elections in the UK and Canada. Yes, all of which are supposed to be interesting. Now, th- I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit worried when people start going, oh, this is going to be an interesting election, yes. right? just because half the time it doesn't turn out to be so no, interesting. No, although we have had some interesting elections in the past few months in Australia, well, for instance. Maybe we just got it out of our system. Yeah, maybe. We'll see tonight. Uh, it's going to be a huge show. And wait, there is more. Uh, we also have a giveaway, five free copies of the book from Car to Keneally. Uh, the definitive book on the previous ALP government. We actually have a number of the contributors here. It's been signed by one of the editors, but the contributors, uh, including Dr. Annika Gallo, who's in the studio for the next session, uh, and Dr. Peter Chen, both contributed to the book. I think they're going to sign those for us as well. Uh, to win a copy, you can tweet out our, cop- our podcast page, www.electionnerds.info, uh, using the hashtag at Election Nerds. Excellent. Now... 
We were supposed to do witty banter. Witty banter. Tell us your funny story. You've got to have some funny story from today because I've got at least an amusing anecdote. <laughs> Look, my best story from today is actually about advertising. I saw the Sydney in the Sydney Morning Herald there was a full-page ad. Um, it took me a little while to realise it was actually a real ad by the Bad t- Bard team that it had progress doesn't happen by accident but it can be stopped by accident or something along those lines, <laughs> which was obviously a reference to the absent-minded Labor voter. Uh, but it had really terrible pictures of both of the party leaders. You know, Foley was there, Bad was there, and they were just, they looked like gangsters. Well, some people, <laughs> some people might suggest, not us, however... No, uh, continue, continue. I, <laughs> no, no, no. I, that's story. I, I just okay. thought it was quite extraordinary. I don't know how useful it is to tell people they might vote accidentally. For a gangster, Disease, yes. For a gangster. I don't know who votes accidentally, but you know, obviously that was well, one of the bits of analysis that came out of the given, Queensland given the people, election. As I was uh, leaving in pre-poll this afternoon after five o'clock, so watching people run in, they may well vote accidentally in yeah. their haste. Yes. My story actually is a little bit, um, not pr- prosaic, but perhaps uh, illustrative the danger of pop-up parties that rely on paying people to turn up and hand out how-to-vote cards. The No Land Tax Party, uh, who have advertised, you know, saying they will pay people to hand out how-to-vote cards. So they had people, there they were, uh, they turned up this morning, they were there at 8 o'clock, they had their tabards on with No Land Tax bright yellow, they had their bundles, and there's bundles of these how-to-vote cards, they work for about an hour, but they're having a little conversation all the way through. They're talking about how they're going to get paid. And one of them had been saying, I've been trying to find out about getting paid. They got so upset about this after an hour, they decided to leave all the materials there and leave. They walked off the job. They walked off how the job. That, I wonder how that's covered under our contemporary industrial relations I have laws. no idea. <laughs> but I think they worried that they were not going to get paid. Whether or not they would have been, it's quite another thing. Mm. It did allow me then to have a little peek at the, uh, and I should have brought it in, the, the, the sheet uh, that they have um, about the bonus system. So I've got this, they have a bonus sheet, so they get bonuses if they get extra votes. I thought, amazing, I've never heard of that. Yeah, I um, have never heard of that either. I had no idea there were some parties who paid people to come up, come out and hand out how-to-vote cards. Um, Stuart, do you want to uh, have yes, a chat with Ben we about whether we've got the, any uh, results? Ben, where are we at? Who's winning? Who's losing? <laughs> Is it over? So I assume all of our listeners know that it's far too early to call these things, but uh, we do have... No, no, call it. We're call starting it. to get votes in. Well... Um, the ABC is close to calling it. Um, the at the moment there's we about two percent, two percent of the vote counted, and uh, it, I wouldn't say the exact amounts, but there's clear swings against the Liberal Party and the National Party, and uh, there are swings towards Labor and the Greens. A small swing to the Greens and a large swing to Labor, uh, but that's pretty much all based on primary votes. We don't really have much of the vote after preferences. Um, and the ABC, for what it's worth, has already projected 44 coalition seats. They need 47 for a majority. I suspect most of those are seats where they have a small vote in, but the swing is clearly nowhere near enough to decide the election, and that number will grow as the night goes on. But we're clearly heading towards a very likely um, coalition victory at this point. Wow. I was just I actually had it open on my screen. I had a look at my screen, and I noticed that, in fact, we, we could call Balmain for the Greens on one booth, I think it is. <laughs> uh, but we probably won't do that. Bet. That's probably getting a little overexcited. Um, Lismore. We've talked about Lismore. 
um, between us, we talked about the interesting seat of Lismore, which is reacting to uh, the uh, the coal steam gas uh, fracas, if you'll pardon the pun, up there. Uh, can you tell us what's happening in Lismore? Yeah, so Lismore, uh, a national party seat, uh, never been, well, not won by Labor for many decades, uh, although the similar areas have often gone Labor at federal elections. And at the last election, Labor actually fell into third place behind the Greens, and it's one of three seats in national seats in northern New South Wales where the Greens overtook Labor at the last election. Um, particularly, it and Ballina were thought to be seats that the Greens had some ambitions towards. Uh, it's been very heavily affected by coal seam gas and both Labor and the Greens have been fighting hard and I think Labor also had ambitions that they could jump from third to first and win those seats. We we don't really know where these booths are coming from. About a third of the booths have reported in Lismore and you would have to assume those booths are from rural areas in the seat. The seat covers a reasonably large rural area as well as the city of Lismore itself and some of those rural booths are places like Nimbin. Ah, yes. Um, I'm sure we'll get a good so green boat in Nimbin. Right? About a third of the booths are in but some of those are also pretty con- like more country areas yep. in Kyogle and Tenterfield. So that would that might balance out. And at the moment, the Greens are about 4% ahead of Labor on primary votes and about 14% behind the Nationals. So if that vote holds, then you would it would probably be a tight race to see whether enough Labor preferences flow to the Greens to see a Green beat the National in that seat. So we could be looking at Pran. If people remember Victoria in, in Vic, the Victorian election, Pran, um, which wasn't expected to fall, uh, and where it would fall was ho- hopefully to Labor, but in fact the Greens came through and took the seat on about, I think it was about 25% of the primary, maybe slightly more. Yeah, absolutely. So it's there's two things that actually make it more interesting than Pran. The first of which is uh, preferences will exhaust because it's a New South Wales state election and not everyone has to preference. Second thing is it's a country seat with a lot of rural booths. It's very... It was unusual the Greens winning a Liberal seat in a in that part of Melbourne. Winning a seat in far north New South Wales in a rural area would be even more remarkable. Wow, could be fun. You are listening to The Election Nerds, coming to you live from the 2SER studios in Sydney and from across the community radio network. It's election day in New South Wales and we're bringing you live coverage with experts in policy and politics from across New South Wales universities. After this short break, we'll return with more results and discussion. Hi, you're back with The Election Nerds New South Wales State Election Special. With me, I have my two prime guests for this session anyway. Uh, Dr. Annika Gauya from the Department of Government International Relations at Sydney University and Dr. Peter Chen from the Department of Government International Relations, pardon me for saying it so fast, at Sydney University. Uh, How are we tonight? How is it looking? How do you feel? Annika. It's really been a a lifelong dream of mine to do election night commentary. Um, And until Anthony Green drops off the perch, I'm very, very happy to be here at 2SER. Uh, contributing to the the election nerd special, uh, as Amanda said earlier, I'm I'm very excited too. I must say, I got a pretty damn good sausage this morning oh, when I went in to I'm vote. I'm so jealous. Um, as I said to a woman walking out, that truly was the taste of democracy. <laughs> <laughs> so it left a, a sour taste in your mouth longer after. <laughs> The yeah. onions lingered a little bit, but the, uh, the sausage itself was, was it quite raw sour. onion? <laughs> oh, all our bad puns coming out. In the yeah, first here half we hour. go. This is terrible. Um, context of the election. Um, 
New South Wales, where was it placed after the last election? Just run us through where it was sitting uh, after 2011. Well, four years ago, if anyone can remember, four years being an incredibly long time, uh, if we think about it in the the context of uh, federal elections, 2011 was an exceptional election. Um, If people remember the... um, Keneally Labor government, which had previously governed for 16 years, uh, very well documented in Carter Keneally. Uh, <laughs> soon to be signed. Soon to be signed by, by myself. I can also do a personalised message if people would like that. Um, governed for 16 years and they were defeated in what was an absolute landslide. Um, the Liberal Party, uh, Liberal National Coalition came back in with a, a swing of 16.4%, which is still the largest um, in Australian, well, since World War II anyway in Australia. Wow. Big, big, big So, defeat. yes, it was an unusual un- unusual election. So we are coming uh, to this election with a sort of a very specific set of circumstances which put the Liberal National Coalition with a big, about as big of a, a head start or a margin as but you can imagine. People have been looking at the, um, the Senate, you know, what's been happening in the Senate in terms of the federal arena. Um, what about the Legislative Council in New South Wales? I mean, we always have heard about the shooters and fishers, you know, with all their business over the Game Council, you know, what deals, you know, the Christian Democrats, 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 <laughs> Democrats going to come up with. Um, what's going to happen in the Upper House, the Ledge Council? What's going on there? Well, the Legislative Council is the more interesting of, of the two houses. So um, there we have a number of, uh, of members who are going to actually return. So we've got three Greens that will still be around, um, one shooter and one um, Christian Democrat. Now, we're expecting uh, Fred Nile and the Christian Democrats to pick up another seat. We're expecting uh, the Liberal National Coalition and the ALP to pick up more seats. But where the balance of power will reside at the, uh, at the end of the night, or actually probably in a week's time, um, given how long it takes to, to do this. Two count, weeks. Two then, weeks' time, um, is yet to be seen. It's probably most likely that the government will have to negotiate with the Christian Democrats. That's their more sort of natural ally uh, for, the, for the Conservative government. Um, there could well be a wild card. Who, no who, land tax party. Who anyone? knows what, what the poll might throw up? There is the no land tax party. I also have my fingers crossed and I smile slightly slyly about the prospect of there being some litigation uh, if the result is close. Because if we remember about a week ago, a week mm. and a half ago, uh, when the iVote system was first set up, so that's the Electoral Commission's online polling system for people who can't make it to a polling booth on the day, uh, the first iteration of the ballot had two parties, the Outdoor Recreation Party and the Animal Justice Party, missing from the above-the-line uh, voting section. And 19,000 people voted while that error was still in place. Um, so if it is a close result, I wouldn't be surprised if one of those parties challenges. Wow, I vote. We could be. Re- I know. <laughs> we could be right back into. Oh, what is? What are our elections coming to? I mean, is this the Senate, uh, WA Senate, all over? Would they have to redo? I mean, not that I can. You know, we can prejudge what what uh, court of disputed returns might say. Um, one should never ever go anywhere near that. Um, but you know, what would be the likely prospects? Redoing the the New South Wales Legislative Council. How, how big would that be? Oh, look, I wouldn't want to uh, second-guess what the Court of Disputed Returns may or may not say in this, in this case. But we can dream. Uh, but we could, we could try. I mean, the electoral, 
the Electoral Commission would probably say that uh, that those two parties still existed below the line, so therefore voters could express a, a preference for, for either or both of them. Um, those parties would argue that the vast, vast majority of people actually vote above the line when it's open to them, uh, given that the ballot paper was over a metre long. Uh, and they would say that, no, they weren't able to express a, a preference for those parties. So if we extrapolate, maybe we'll have to have a, a fresh election. Wouldn't that be fun? I can only hope. The context of the election. Peter, I might ask you, uh, here we have two-part government. We, the, the, we, we came out of the last election with Barry O'Farrell, had emerged victorious, become the Premier, uh, and perhaps unlike um, Bailu in Victoria, it actually wanted to be Premier. And we assume so. He spent his whole life working towards it, yes. Exactly, exactly. But achieved it, made it. What happened? What happened next? Yeah, it was a kind of disaster, wasn't it? So Farrell's a very interesting character, and we have to remember that like a few other leaders that we see around uh, Australia at the moment, so obviously Dan Andrews is one example. Uh, the other example is Anastasia Palaszczuk. Uh, Foley had basically been a political apparatchik or staffer for his entire professional life. Um, that's not too novel, though, because we have to remember that um, Malcolm Fraser never had a job other than being a politician too, that he went into the parliament at 25. But theoretically, uh, becoming Premier was something that Barry O'Farrell wanted to do for his entire life, but he had a terrible transition into government, and um, this did lead to him eventually uh, resigning over the gift of a $3,000 bottle of wine. Um, An interesting resignation for two reasons. First, he doesn't drink, so it wasn't actually a, 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 a gift or inducement that benefited him personally. And the second, I think people might remember about a year or so ago when this all blew up, there was a lot of speculation that he jumped early because there was something else, you know, they were going to find all the girl guides buried in his backyards or something like that. Um, but um, he either got away with it or he never did it. He's the honest man in politics. Um, but his government did have considerable problems. Um, you'll have to remember that he came into government under a Labor federal government. Um, he signed up the first to sign up to the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. He was the first to sign up to the Gonski educational reforms. And so in a way, he was kind of out of alignment with the direction that the federal Liberal Party were taking. Then in government, he had to negotiate with uh, the Shooters and Fishers, who were holding the balance of power. Always fun. And that created some problems, um, partly of his own making, but partly um, independently. So you'll remember that he set up the New South Wales Game Council, which was largely seen as a sort of a gift to the Shooters and Fishers, an institutionalised pro-hunting group within the government. And he agreed also to allow um, hunting in uh, parks. Yes. Um, but the Game Council was then uh, uh, ran into difficulties when um, the people who were running were accused of breaking the law around hunting. Um, he then backed away from his commitments and the Shooters and Fishers froze him out of uh, being able to achieve his policy objectives. One of those policy objectives being this thing called the selling of poles and wires to raise money to run his government. Um, and that led to his quick downfall and his replacement with Mike Bard. Um, and Bard has had a much better run. He's been an interesting figure. He, unlike O'Farrell, he's younger than O'Farrell, but he's had a private sector life before government, so slightly more credentials in kind of the life outside politics realm. Um, but he has had two iterations. The early Bard was 
often heralded for his similarity to Tony Abbott. You know, they were both North Shore electorate holding, young family, attractive families, white Christian surfers who look good in a Speedo. Um, And latterly, we've seen Mike Bard reposition himself as the anti-Abbott. So soft-spoken where Abbott is, assertive, articulate where Abbott is, inarticulate and things like that. Um, But Bard's government hasn't achieved that much because he also has difficulties with the upper house. Um, But no one seems to have noticed, so it hasn't hurt him. One thing before I uh, actually chuck to uh, Amanda, I just wanted to check in on one thing. You say, oh, Bard had a fairly easy... I know I still want to call him Baird, but Mm. Bard had a fairly easy run. What about those 10 Liberal MPs? Yeah, well, that's, uh, I guess that's a kind of critical factor, the loss of the 10 Liberal MPs to ICAC um, for fiddling the uh, electoral funding laws. Um, for whatever reason, it just didn't affect his government. Mm. And I think what it shows is, you know, people often present very kind of negative or jaded views about the, uh, the electorate. But in this case, the electorate did clearly delineate the sort of type of corruption, the very personal self-aggrandisement corruption that is still in the court, so very allegedly undertaken by senior figures in the Labor Party. The electorate do seem to treat that differently to the kind of political fundraising corruption of developer money into campaigns. Um, but we do have to remember that the most popular political institution in New South Wales is ICAC. Yes. Will ICAC survive, though? Well, I, question. I think that's that's going to be very interesting. We have to watch that. Remember what happened, though, with uh, Queensland. Um, even though the Fitzgerald inquiry was a long period of time ago, even you know minor attempts to kind of fiddle with the machinery that came, the anti-corruption machinery that came out of that by uh, Candu Campbell's government uh, was seen as a very sinister move by the electorate. Yes. And so, um, you know... Um, and indeed, we're seeing the continued fallout with Tim Carmody. Oh, ex- exactly right. Yes. So it's going to continue on and on. Thanks, Peter. I wonder if we might talk about the New South Wales opposition over the last four years, though. Keating once suggested that facing an ineffectual opposition was like being flogged with wet lettuce. Annika, should someone have given the ALP a salad spinner? How have they gone? Zinger. Yeah, I know. Yeah, nice I one, know. Baby. I wanted to get that right in. out of Bill Shorten's Absolutely. book. Absolutely. Um, have they been as was effective? That book? Have they been any good as an opposition? Have, or have they been as effective as we might well, expect, I, given the landslide against them? I think. I think the lettuce analogy is apt because lettuce in a salad is always the working horse. Uh, it's never the hero of a salad. Uh, that's a lot like life in opposition. It's it's a hard slog, no matter no matter who you are. And the reality is, a lot of Elections are lost by governments rather than being won by oppositions. So that's put the Labor Party on on the back foot from from the go. Uh, I would, I think that, the, and the most interesting thing that I think has happened in New South Wales politics over the last four years is this is something that Peter touched on was the the ICAC fiasco. Mm. Um, and yes, it doesn't really have seemed to have affected the Liberal Party. Uh, as much as it has Labor Party. I mean, I think that in a way, because it affected both parties equally, that's cancelled the total, the sum effect of it on on this election out. Um, But certainly Baird, at least in the last 12 months, has performed pretty well. I mean, you know, a week hasn't gone by where we haven't had a a major announcement about infrastructure or hospital building and so so forth, which is just hard for an opposition to try to to counter that or to argue. You can argue with the position Mm. of a road, but can you really argue with a hospital. 
Yeah, I mean, like the like the government itself, the the opposition has had some leadership changes as well. Yes, yes, no, the, <laughs> some quite recent ones. <laughs> no, Luke Foley was a little bit of a a little bit of a shock change, yeah. and I think it's something very difficult for the the electorate to get used to. The Labor Party has done a a good job of trying to get him out there um, during the campaign, and they've also for the last twelve months or so since. The, the election disaster that was 2011 put a lot of resources into rebuilding the party from the ground up, a lot of resources into community campaigning and organising. So, you know, even if uh, they're not as, there's no hope for them in, in 2015, onwards to 2019. Right. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a, it, interesting points. I wonder, though, how, Peter, how much the federal context has affected both the position of the New South Wales opposition, but also the Liberal Party. I mean, there's been, the Abbott effect has been much talked about over the last few weeks with Queensland, but also New South Wales. Yeah, I mean, this election was always going to be read in the context of the federal dimension. I mean, and uh, and certainly the outcome will be heralded by whoever's the victor um, as an endorsement of their kind of position for federal issues. I think on one level, that's obviously drawing a long bow. And on the other level, that's kind of accurate to some extent. So um, the drawing a long bow side of it is that this is a state election that's been fought over state issues. Some of those issues are definitely co-mingled with um, the federal government policy space. And clearly the funding of WestConnex being a very mm. complex public-private partnership uh, agreement that includes money from state and federal plus privatisation plus subsidy for privatisation makes that a complex kind of issue. Um, certainly both the leadership of the Liberal Party federally and of the Labor Party have managed to be kept quite well away from this election actually. So while um, certainly um, Foley has talked about um, this, in a sense, being a test for the Abbott leadership. Mm. I don't think that's really cut through necessarily. Um, but uh, but the victory for um, the LNP, which is we're you know almost certain to see uh, in the lower house, will mean that um, that Tony Abbott is given a slight reprieve. If it had been some weird, complete uh, annihilation like we saw in Queensland, um, then that would have had serious implications. Mm, I mean, it's a back and forward dynamic, isn't it? it? That a win doesn't have an implication, but a, a loss does. I mean, it, does a win shore up Abbott's position in that sense? Well, certainly that will be the claim that's made. Um, and uh, the the Abbott has not been kept completely away from the campaign too, but he only came into the campaign to play to areas of his strength. So he was um, digging the first sod in the West Connects project, mm. for example. And that ties him to the campaign to some degree, but also links the campaign to the federal policy, which is the roads of the 21st century, which is a total Abbott kind of initiative mm. as well. Mm. Um, but um, Mike Bader, I think, recognised that he couldn't avoid having Abbott on the campaign. And I think they've managed that effectively. I think the more interesting probably discussion is why the ALP thought that their leadership shouldn't be anywhere near. And they probably thought that, well, because Foley's a complete unknown, mm. um, they didn't want to actually make the narrative too confusing because then people would have walked up to Shorten, you know, saying, good on your Premier or whatever, something like that. And then that would have belittled Foley, who's got already, you know, zero name recognition. Mm. I mean, he's got more name recognition now because of negative advertising from the Liberals than mm. he has from, you know, his own side. Yeah, right. We're going to take a little break from New South Wales uh, election review for a moment um, and turn to Dr. Peter Chen is talking to uh, Dr. Jill Merrim from uh, the Department of Government at Sydney University about the recent election in Israel. So 
Israel held its 20th Knesset election on the 17th of March this year. In summary, what was the result of that election? Big picture is that 72.3% of the voters voted, which is a normal amount of voters. The pure right, if you will, got 43 out of 120 seats. The somewhat softer rights, 10 seats. Sectorial Orthodox Party, two of them, together 13 seats. So altogether, this is about the right center wing of Israel, got 66 to 67 seats out of 120, and indeed this will be the coalition. The left generally got 29 votes, i.e. it was a Zionist camp plus marriage, which is far left, not far, but left, let's say. And there is a future, so to call, Yesh Atid, in Hebrew, got 11 seats. So together they have 40 seats. The Arab parties received either 13 or 14. We'll see to see the final count, but that's about what one united Arab party received. So it's not radically different from the 19th Knesset, though it's more convenient from the right point of view. It's easier and clearer to build a right-wing coalition. It also probably puts Israel at a collision course with the international community. Okay. So the Australian media coverage tended to paint this campaign as being framed between the ruling Likud party's narrative about security and that of the Zionist camp's focus on the Israeli domestic economy. Is this a good way of characterising the election? Partially. It's definitely correct that Likud, and particularly Netanyahu, waved mainly the security card, i.e. Iran, ISIL, radical Islam, etc. But equally important from his perspective and campaign, he also brought up a domestic fear campaign, i.e. the fear that Likud is going to lose, the quote-unquote left is going to come to power, and there will be a disaster. So he also played an emotional part, calling his voter to come and save Likud, save him, so they don't lose to the left. It was very crucial in this election and in his success, electoral success. The left, indeed, Herzog played mostly the domestic card or tried to capitalize on what used to be known as the social protest of two years ago. It's a bit awkward that he avoided altogether to present himself as an international level leader and it probably cost him some votes. Australians might not know, but the uh, voting system in Israel tends to favour large numbers of parties with seats in parliament and coalition formation for government. Who is Mr Netanyahu's uh, Likud party likely to form government with and what impact is that likely to have on the character of the 20th parliament? I think that, first of all, you are correct. Israel tempted in the past, like other electoral systems, that reward small parties to reward small parties. But this somewhat has changed. In the 19th uh, Knesset election, the threshold was 2%, and in this election it was 3.25. The difference is that this time we have 10 parties, and last time we have 12 parties in the Knesset, Mind you, 16 have not met the threshold and didn't vote any representative to the Knesset. So the number of parties has shrunk somewhat. It's also the main reason why three Arab 
parties became one united party and gave the Arab for the first time ever a significant mass of 13, probably 14 Knesset members. That's the first part of it, if you will. I think that the coalition, there's no question, because I said the picture is very clear what is right, center-right. That's exactly is going to be the coalition. Netanyahu can either build easily a 61-vote uh, coalition members, or 67, he will go for the 67, simply because 61 puts him at a position to be extracted by any party that threatens to leave the coalition. So he will have he and the Jewish House and our Israel, Lieberman, pre used to be Russian, uh, quote-unquote, party, and two orthodox parties as well, and of course, Naftali Bennett's, the Jewish House, which is kind of representing the settlers. You will have a coalition of 67 parties, as I said, including two orthodox Jewish parties, and one that is problematic in terms of the orthodox, which is Lieberman's Our Israel, because it presumably has a civil a kind of agenda against religions, institutions, against religions, coercion, and whatever they describe. Uh, it's going to be presumably from a ideological point of view, a cohesive coalition, a rather cohesive coalition. But as I said, it's going to confront the world, and that will put a lot of pressure on Netanyahu as a prime minister. Well, uh, Dr. Gil Merrin, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And you're back with the election nerds live in the studio. Uh, I'm Dr. Stuart Jackson. Um, with me is Dr. Amanda Elliott. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Stuart. Quick intro to you. We do have some new guests in, in the uh, office, but actually in the studio, what I'm going to do is we're going to quickly talk to um, Ben Rowey, Dr. Honorary Dr. Ben Rowey, about where things are at in terms of the results. Ben, can you just read us through some of the results as they're coming in? So, um, <coughs> so at the moment, the ABC is saying Coalition 49, Labor 30, but a lot of that is seats that we can't really say which seats, but there are a few seats that have got enough votes that we're starting to see predictions of what they might uh, mean. Uh, Blue Mountains, um, it looks like Labor has gained that seat back. That's off a very small vote, but they are on a 13% swing. And that was Copenberg's old seat. Phil Copenberg uh, held it for one term, the former Rural Fire Services Commissioner, and lost it at the last election to Rosa Sage. Um, so that's that's one seat Labor's gained. Uh, Labor has gained... Fire sale, anyone? Sorry, that's a bad pun. <laughs> uh, they're projecting, but it's off a very low vote. But the primary votes are very good for Labor. Uh, they're, they're actually... The Liberals are in danger of falling to third place in Maitland. Um, wow. So Labor, Labor's on 43% and the Liberals are on 24 off nine booths. So while there's not many preferences counted... That looks pretty clear that Maitland is going to go back to Labor. They're also looking reasonably good in the entrance in Port Stephens, both of which are seats where the local uh, Liberal MP was ICAC affected. So ICAC strikes at this point. This is excellent. Um, run us through some of the, the, the seats where the Greens were rumoured. Then we have the, 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 the rumours, well, not the rumours, but the polls that were in the papers saying, no, no, it's, it's going to be won by Labor. Yeah. So let's look at, let's start with those rural seats, the, the oddities, as it were, as to where they're at. Where, where are we at with Lismore? And I'm now hearing Ballina. Yeah, so uh, Lismore and Ballina are both seats where there's a... It's not clear whether Labor or the Greens will come second, while the Nationals are well in front on primary votes. So effectively, like with Paran, there's two stages to be crossed. You have to determine which of the progressive parties is effectively the one that makes it through to the final round. And then can that progressive party get enough preferences from the other progressive party to overtake the conservative candidate? 
Uh, in Lismore at the moment, we've had a couple more booths in, but the big booths aren't really reporting yet. I'm, I'm, I don't have breakdowns, but I'm assuming uh, the Lismore booths are the ones that have the actual town of Lismore haven't reported. But the Greens are leading Labor by 2.7, but then they're about 16% behind the Nationals. So they would need a very strong Labor preference flow. And in Ballina, uh, we have kind of, we have half of the booths reporting in Ballina, and the Greens are leading Labor by, wow, by quite a bit, almost six percent. Wow, thirty-one percent Greens, twenty-five point seven percent Labor, but the numbers are very small. So I'm guessing they're the sixteen smallest booths, um, and so that probably means the town of Ballina, which tends to be better for Labor and worse for the Greens, hasn't reported yet. And in Ballina and in Lismore. They are doing a two-party preferred count between the Nationals and Labor, and in both seats, the Nationals are just a tiny bit ahead, but it, that's off even less votes. So the North Coast bites back. We'll come back to the others later, but now we turn to uh, we turn to a station pre-record, I believe. You are listening to The Election Nerds, coming to you live from the 2SER studios in Sydney and from across the community radio network. It's election day in New South Wales and we're bringing you live coverage with experts in policy and politics from across New South Wales universities. After this short break, we'll return with more results and discussion. Welcome back. Joining us, uh, well, Annika Gaya is still here. Thanks for staying, Annika. Um, and, uh, but joining us is Dr Mark Rolfe from UNSW. Hi, Mark. How are you going? Good evening, all. How's your Good election evening. day? Oh, it's been very nice. Has very it? nice. Did you day. get a sausage sizzle? I had a Wagyu burger from Stanmore Public School. Get out! Yes. Oh, I feel incredibly ripped off now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're in the inner west, you've got to have that sort of thing rather than just your Sanger Sanger sandwich. Yeah. Well, Annika thinks a Sanger sandwich is the taste of democracy, which is, I think, terrific. <laughs> but Mark, Mark got the, the, the burger. The burger. Of, that's yeah. right. Oh, it was very democratic. <laughs> I'm at Elbow at uh, at Stanmore School as well. Who was handing out the uh, the how to vote cards? Fantastic. So yes, it was all happening there. So did they advertise it as the Good Burgers Burger? <laughs> oh, boom, boom. Oh, we're rolling on the puns tonight. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to discuss the conduct of the campaign. This has been billed as the unlosable election with the AI. Because, partly because the ALP suffered such a significant defeat in 2011 and the government uh, maintained throughout most of the period since a, a fairly comfortable margin in the polls. But there have been some recent election upsets with first-term governments swept out of power uh, at the following election, sometimes to the surprise uh, of many of us. Annika, has what happened in Victoria and Queensland changed how the parties approached the New South Wales election? Well, it's certainly given Luke Foley some hope, <laughs> but uh, as we all know, New South Wales is not Queensland. Indeed. <laughs> I think both states would agree with you on yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it is very much an, an un unlosable uh, election. The Libs have got such a, a large majority to, to play with, uh, and w we, we know they'll lose some seats, but, but nowhere near enough to, to lose uh, the election in some. If we think about the similarities and contrasts with Victoria, uh, Victoria was a, a much closer contest between the two major parties. But the key similarity there was the emphasis on infrastructure. 
And the Victorian election showed us that voters do care about that and that can actually swing an election, mm. what people think about infrastructure. Uh, Queensland, I mean, Queensland was a completely diff- different kettle of fish. Mike Baird is also not Campbell Newman, mm. uh, quite obviously. Um, and the other interesting thing about Queensland is that it doesn't have an upper house like New South Wales does. And I think that the effect of having an upper house tends to, to moderate things in an election. Um, I think voters are reasonably... Uh, well, they're educated enough, certainly, to realise that they do have a split-ticket vote. So in the Queensland case, the distaste of the the Newman government was so great that that's the only alternative they had, was to throw them out. In New South Wales, people can say, yes, we're reasonably happy with how Baird's gone, we'll continue on in the Legislative Assembly, but we'll put our vote elsewhere in the Upper House just to try and temper things. Which is going to make the Upper House really interesting, and we'll talk more about that. Um, later, Annika, one of the the questions I suppose has been around polling. It mm. seems that the the, the liberal that has been in in the lead most of the way. But uh, you know, are there problems with preference modelling? What's the what's the kind of story with this? Is it just becoming more difficult for us to trust the polls? Um, well, in this case, I don't think that the margin is slim enough for it to be a, a real problem in the New South Wales context. Um, the Liberal Party has been consistently ahead in the polls and actually nothing much has changed since January. We pretty much have ended the campaign where we've started in terms of the two-party preferred vote. But just talking slightly technically, um, the way in which polling is modelled... I mean, pollsters can be reasonably confident with federal elections because mm. they can be confident of the preference flows. In New South Wales, where you don't have to give preferences to a party, it makes it a lot more difficult for, for pollsters to predict that. So you can see some variation, but I think when the margin is, is looking at about 8%, it's not going to be that great. Yeah, right. I mean, I think there's... Um, there are... I mean, the other thing is that we haven't had polls in a lot of seats. Stuart, I think you were saying earlier, there have been... There's a number of seats where polls just haven't um, been done at the local level. Well, that's true. We, we, we'd, we'd heard about the Newtown poll, which came out with a number of other polls around Strathfield and some of the uh, other sort of inner west seats. Um, but the one that I never saw was, was Balmain. And I thought, well, I'm surprised with Verity running against the sitting green. That would be the logical one for someone to poll. But maybe the people just thought it wasn't interesting enough or the poll wouldn't tell us anything or anything newsworthy, perhaps. And there hasn't been that, that lot of um, the block of polling that you might otherwise see. We get sometimes inured to, to what we see in the federal polls, but also what we see overseas, where you do get quite a lot of electorate-level polling. Um, whereas we, we don't have a, a traditional, when we do, it's with, you know, they say, on this, this poll with this seat with 200 votes. And you're going, well, that 200 is, not go, is nothing you can take home or write home about. It could swing either way. It's statistically irrelevant. You go, well... Uh, do we get good polling here? Um, perhaps it's a factor of the size of the electorates. Perhaps it's a factor of the uh, maybe people don't they actually answer the phone. Perhaps they don't want to talk to pollsters, and it takes too much. It's too much effort. I, I'm not uh, a full bottle on on opinion polling, but we haven't had a lot of that electorate level polling, except as, as I said in some of the inner west seats, and then they start to focus on Western Sydney, and that's when you get the Telegraph does those that sort of uh, level polling. And is that usual? Do we? Have have there been previous elections where we've had much closer look at electorate level 
poll it? Oh, look, I think you, you poll when there's a news story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what, 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 what polling is essentially um, linked to. Uh, I think where, where Western Sydney has really come into play, that's mm. when 2011 um, in particular, that's when we saw more of, of that sort of polling and reporting of polling results. Um, but certainly this election, yeah, I mean, there's been the standard polls, but uh, nothing too specific. There has been the Vote Compass initiative. Yes, there has. Uh, which is technically not a poll. But, no. uh, <laughs> but that's Keep actually, saying it, keep saying it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's been a very, very important civic initiative to get voters engaged in policy debates prior to the election. Can I just perhaps ask, are you involved in Vote Compass, Seneca? Um, yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> That's a conflict of interest or anything. Um, we need these declarations. <laughs> but that's that's given us some, some interesting information. And the latest thing to come out of that last night was that a lot of voters are still undecided. Mm. Um, and the, that the majority of undecided voters were actually thinking of going to minor parties, which sort of brings this pref- the, the debate back full circle mm. to, to the issue of, of preferences. I mean, it's certainly, I don't want to harp on Vote Compass, but it's certainly, I, I know a number of people <coughs> who are voting in their very first election. They're young voters. Um, and my kind of, you know, the extent of my advice is go and see, you know, what, where you come next, you know, have a look mm-hmm. through Vote Compass, mm-hmm. see where you align. And, and it's been really quite interesting because they've often been quite surprised mm-hmm. as to where they, where they align. Um, Mark, today is the end of the election campaign. Yes. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on how the campaign's been run overall by both of the parties? In terms, say, of language? Language, the, the, yeah. These sort of messages that yeah. have been used. Have they stayed on message through the campaign? Pretty much. I mean, the government has employed the standard um, appeal that's made by governments at this stage. They've had a first term. They're up for a re- re-election. Now, this sort of language is used by either parties, and it's, we've come so far, we've cleaned up a bit of the mess that was less left to us, but it's too dangerous to switch horses mm. at this stage. You've got to re-elect us. We've got to get back in. And that's fine for this time. It's going to be harder the next time. People are, were still judging the capacity of Labor this mm. time after 16 years. And what's interesting, of course, is that the government was saying that Luke Foley was too inexperienced. He was an L plater just like Mark Latham, Latham in 2004. Was, yes. Yeah, it was almost a rerun of that, wasn't it? Was it was a rerun yeah. with the same sort of L plate sign. But yeah. Mike Baird might have got it from when his daughter did the driving test. I don't know. <laughs> and then they used it in the ad. Um, but what's interesting is it's an argument that could have been used against Mike Baird and Barry O'Farrell in mm. 2011. And it's a, an argument that can be used against any opposition, almost. Yeah. Uh, now, what's also interesting is that. Baird was appearing on Facebook with lots of family shots, and that's been happening since at least December. Yeah. Um, his wedding anniversary, his daughter's 18th birthday in December, and lately his, what was it, the 25th wedding anniversary. So it's it's that appeal of family and credibility and nice guy. Mm. And, and he was, therefore, the central piece of the coalition campaign. On the other hand, Labor... And the unions were using the, well, the effective message of Americanisation. Mm. We've got to be careful of Americanisation. And that was coming up a lot in the Nurses and Midwives Association campaign, for example, and their door knocking. 
So here we're getting into, I don't know whether you want to talk about the grassroots yeah, campaign. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and to go to places like uh, the seat of Maitland and, and seats like East Hills, Swansea on the central coast, they were out in force for months and months and months. Um, in that door knocking In the door, door knocking, knocking way, yeah. stations, ferry terminals, what have you. Uh, in Swansea, they started last October. And they'd had, according to their site, 14,000 conversations from then until February. Mm. So there's been a much more, I think, coordinated grassroots campaign from Labor and the unions um, who are apparently evil, according to the Liberal message as well. Foley is a unionist. As if that's something wrong. As if they shouldn't be <laughs> yeah. involved. We, we did win the Freedom of Association a number of years ago now. <laughs> well, I mean, these and things couldn't always the be party. Grabs, couldn't they? Yeah. Well, yes, indeed, they <laughs> seem to be. Yes. Um, and, of course, that's that's a recycle of an old theme going back 100 years. Beware yes, the unionists. Unions, so you can yeah. take that back to the 19th century almost. Mm. Um, but back to the Labor grassroots. In comparison to the Liberals, I mean, it was more haphazard. Labor seemed to be across a number of the important seats that I was looking at, out there repeatedly, week in, week out, day in, day out with these messages. The candidate, the Liberal candidate for Newtown, Rachel Weldall, she had nothing on her Facebook page. She had her photo and that was it. Why do they bother doing that sort of thing? It just annoys people. It certainly annoyed me. Um, On the other hand, the Liberals in, uh, was it East Hills, Tony Issa, uh, I think it was, no, Granville, he's in Granville. He was out. So what I've heard is that it is a bit more uh, haphazard with the Liberals than with Labor in that yeah. regards. So much more coordinated by Labor. I mean, I, I, this is, there's a, a big question about the community organising this grassroots organising. It's a re-emergence of an older, you know, model yeah. rather than, than a new one. Um, Annika, reinventing you, the wheel. It is reinventing the wheel a little bit, isn't it? Annika, do you want to come in on this? I know you've been yeah, thinking think, about this quite a lot. I, I, I think about it day in, day out. Um, but it comes back to, I suppose, what I was saying uh, about the Labor government in opposition, where they were building capacity mm. within the party to try to do that. And they've spent the last four years building up not so much their membership base, their membership base is going nowhere, if not, mm. off, if not down, but their base of supporters basically people who are on the mailing lists that will come out and uh, and help them door knock, recruiting volunteers like that. Um, and also holding community pre-selections in key mm. seats like Balmain and like Newtown as well, where they've gotten people who have, you know, voted in that particular pre-selection and then the, the hope is that they'll come in and, and volunteer and do that grassroots campaigning. These selections took place a year ago, so they've been doing it for, for a good 12 months. Um, the... Uh, the effect of community pre-selections is is touted to be about uh, 6% of the vote. So if we Gosh. see an increase in the Labor vote of, of 6% in Balmain and Newtown, yeah. that would be that would be true to experiences overseas. Yeah, right. And um, it certainly would encourage them to, to keep going with that um, kind of model, wouldn't it? If, you know, if they're getting a 6%. Well, certainly in seats where they need that sort of yeah. a swing. If it's a seat with an incumbent, it, it would do more damage, I suppose, Just, than good. Yeah. But in, in key marginal seats, it's a very mm. effective method of getting the community actually involved. So this is where New South Wales is like Victoria, but not like Queensland. 
<laughs> it might be. I mean, okay. it, it kind of does take us in. Maybe you both just um, want to talk for a moment about the effectiveness of the campaigns. From what I'm hearing you both say, um, while it might be the unlose, you know, the unwinnable election from the ALP side, they've actually run a reasonably effective campaign that is building a capacity, a base for next time, Mark? Well, I think so, in a range of ways. Obviously, with this campaign, they've got to be seen to be effective in the results. Mm. Uh, It comes to naught if they don't get the seats back that they should get back, Um, you know, particularly in the the southwest and west that they lost in the 2011 election. If they don't get most of them back, you know, it's... That'll be bad for Labor, I think. You know, s- some traditional seats. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you know, the advantage of these grassroots campaigns is that they get lots of data from this sort of stuff, mm. which goes into their database for future state and federal elections, building up the database about who is where and what way do they vote and what sort of people they are. So the federal implications of the election might be unclear, but they're building not just for the state, yes, next state election, yes. but also the next yeah. federal. And that's where the, the Liberals should be out across the yeah. seats, gathering that sort of information. I mean, they are in some, as I said, like um, uh, Tony Issa's people, but it should be across the board because that's a resource for the future. Mm. Well, we should, we should look at some results. Maybe then, we should. We? Thanks, Stuart. <laughs> Let's get some fun time down. Uh, if you'll pardon the r- rather poor pun then. No, I was just looking at some results myself and uh, the, some of the seats are now starting to be appearing called by the uh, ABC. Um, ben, we didn't get to talk about uh, the two green or nominal, well, one green seat, one nominal green seat in Newtown and Balmain. Where are we at with Newtown and Balmain? And then I'd like to have a look at some of those some odd seats that are popping up um, that are looking quite very interesting. Yeah, so in both Newtown and Balmain, uh, the Greens are leading, basically, and the degree to which they're leading is up for discussion. Um, The last time um, I looked at Newtown, according to the publicly available data, the Greens were leading by about 7% off 11 booths, which is a pretty solid amount. And um, also doing very well on the preference count. Uh, Balmain's a bit more complicated because the Liberal vote is higher and we don't know what that Liberal vote will do. But um, Jamie Parker is also leading Verity Firth by a few points on the um, primary vote in those seats. Good grief. The Greens could win four seats. Yeah, I'm I'm very confident they won't win all (laughs) four, but there are four that they could win. Wow. Okay, so Newton looking good in Newtown. Um, Balmain, a little bit too early to call, but uh, how about, um, I wanted to cross a couple of the other ones, like um, Goulburn, right? I want to talk about Goulburn, because there's, well, the appearance of a, of a 20% swing against Prue Goward, right, which is actually wow. quite significant. Yeah. Even though they actually needed a bit more than that to actually knock her off, as it were, um, the size of that swing, right, and it's being partly replicated, this is where we're talking about Ballon, and we talk about Lismore, um, can you tell us at the moment where we're up to? Well, if the magic of the uh, the interwebs is allowing us to, to see Goulburn, can you see where we're at with Goulburn? I can't see Goulburn, unfortunately. Oh, mama, never but, mind. Um, uh, okay, so we got that. Um, yeah, so at the moment, it does look like Prue Goward will, probably, will, will almost certainly retain her seat. She's running against the Labor candidate, which is a former senator, Ursula Stevens. Uh, but at the moment, the swing to Labor is over 20% in that seat. Goulburn uh, is quite an interesting seat in that it's shifted quite far to the west in the redistribution. Um, 
losing uh, Prugoward's heartland areas around Bowral and most of the, not all of, but most of the Southern Highlands, and in exchange gaining areas like Yes uh, from Burrenjuk. Uh, initially, um, Katrina Hodgkinson, who's a National Party minister in the government, um, planned to run for Goulburn because half of her electorate had been moved into it and they were facing up the possibility of two uh, coalition ministers running against each other in the election and they avoided that. But it's possible that there, there could be factors relating to the fact that the western half of that seat was used to the nationals and the nationals um, didn't run this time. Uh, you'd have to look at where that swing has happened to know more. And let's just do it just before we quickly move to, to uh, the, the station um, announcement. Um, where are we at overall? Uh, can we call the election? I think we can call the election. I think the the coalition is going to be re-elected. There's a couple of seats that um, Labor has gained that we can report at the moment. Uh, Granville, um, Blue Mountains, and I thought there was another one before. Um, we were talking about Maitland earlier as well. Yes. They're all seats on margins of less than 6%. However, there are some seats in that area that are not swinging as strongly. East Hills is a 0.2% margin. It's the most marginal um, liberal seat in the state. And and uh, at the moment, they're not strong enough to win that, and it's very close. So that speaks to you, Mark. The South is not swinging quite the way it's meant to swing. Thanks, Ben and Stuart. Just before we go to a short break, I'd like to thank Dr Annika Gallia for joining us tonight. Thanks, Annika. Thank you very much. And uh, Mark's staying for the next section. So. The general election for the United Kingdom is coming up on the 7th of May. Certainly the Cameron government has had a complex period of time in government having formed a coalition. At the moment it looks like uh, Labor, with possibly the support of the Scottish National Party, may defeat the Cameron government. Is that likely in your opinion? Yeah, it's highly likely. I mean, it seems to be the only outcome. The problem with the Conservatives is they've got no support in Scotland at all, but Labor's support has also collapsed. And the SNP have done really well since the referendum vote. So really what you've got is you've only got one alliance that can work, which is between Labour and the SNP. Liberal Democrats on all kind of polls I've seen are finished, basically, as a major party. So they're really struggling. And it was a, they didn't really have anything to go, but Clegg had no option but to go in with the Conservatives. But it's really done them very great damage. It seems very interesting. I mean, Westminster itself was once the, the standard bearer for the two-party system and uh, with devolution and uh, entry into Europe and uh, the Scottish referendum and the rise of the SNP, the two-party system appears to be dead in the United Kingdom. Is this a good analysis or is this just a blip? Well, I th- no, I, th- I think that's basically sound analysis from my perspective. What, what you've had ever since the emergence of Thatcher in '79. And then the, the Blair governments that had to move to the right to get elected. You've had the centre of British politics move, and that's happened across the globe, I think, to, to a certain extent. But with the emergence of UKIP, the problems with the SNP in Scotland probably going to get, go again for a, a vote for devolution. Wales as well. So the centre's been kind of hollowed out in UK politics. And those two parties, really, if you, you know, they're only going to take about 33% each of the vote. So overall, the landscape of UK politics has fundamentally changed. And it's not a two-party system anymore. UK's had very few home parliaments in the past, but looks to me like where it is now, it's going to have more and more of them. Do you think that the political elite, particularly in England, is going to regret their decision not to introduce electoral reform? 
there was a lot of discussion about introducing preferential voting systems or moving to electoral systems that might deal with the multi-party aspect of the landscape there. Is that going to be a problem into the future? Well, they had a vote on it and they, they lost the vote. So basically the Lib Dems wanted it, the Conservatives didn't. Labour kind of sat on the fence on that issue. But it is going to be a problem because one of the strange things that looks to me horrendously, I have to say, UKIP are going to end up with somewhere between 12 to maybe 18% of the vote, but because of the UK system, they're going to get very few seats. So whatever you think of UKIP, it's not representative. UKIP are going to poll more percentage vote than the Lib Dems, but end up with less seats than the Lib Dems. So that doesn't seem to me to be a, an electoral system. It, it delivers parties that can run the country, but doesn't deliver fairness across the electoral system. The other, I guess, thing of note is the proximity of the election to the budget. In Australia, possibly with a simpler political culture, it would have been a spoils budget that the government would have dug deep to give a pig in every poke. But uh, while the UK talks about moving out of austerity, this has not been a fulsome budget except for beer and cider drinkers, as I understand it. Can you sort of explain that? Is that just about, you know, English reserve? I think I need you to explain why you think Australia is a simpler system. I find Australia much more complicated. (laughs) Anyway, well, they don't have a great deal of room to manoeuvre. That government, the Cameron government and the coalition went in on an austerity kind of project. They can't suddenly ditch that and start throwing money around all over the place. So they, because of the narrative they constructed, they didn't have a great deal of options to give the public back. So they tried to do some, but it's not going to be anywhere near enough to get them, I think, a, a majority they're so far off a majority. I think each party is about 40 votes, 40 seats mm. under what they need. I mean, is austerity going to frame the election or are other key issues going to come in? Obviously, with UKIP, Europe's going to be dragged into the debate. But what do you see as the, the fault lines in this election that we should be following? I think certainly the budget is the big one, which I think is a big mistake. Mm. I don't buy the arguments about austerity. I think you can't treat government budgets like you can a, a household budget, so they're totally different. So, and governments have a, a revenue raising problem, and austerity just feeds that, so that they can't raise money by taxes as economies go in decline. You can't you lose tax income rather than generate it. So it's going to austerity is a major problem. UKIP, if they get enough of the vote, are going to force the Conservatives to really consider the place in Europe. And if they can do a deal, but it doesn't look likely with the SNP looking to be the major winners of this election, really, then the Conservatives are not going to be able to do a deal with UKIP to do something about Europe. Although they might... I would give it a, about another three or four weeks and you might see the Conservatives starting to make moves about... to make noises anyway about what they're going to do with Europe if they get elected. Hoping that Nick votes off UK. Uh, Professor Colin White, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Peter. And welcome back to the Election Nerds Election New South Wales Election Night Special. Um, my name is Dr. Stuart Jackson. I'm joined, and my guest right in front of me right at the moment is Dr. Mark Rolfe from the University of New South Wales, rejoining us after that break, and Dr. Lloyd Cox, all the way from Macquarie University. Hello, Lloyd. How's it going? It's, it's going great. Great to be here. Uh, I've noticed in the studio you've been having quite an interesting day. We had Matt Thistlethwaite in with you chatting earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how did that go? Oh, it was uh, it was good. Matt's an, uh, an acute observer of uh, electoral politics, and uh, I think he was already calling it mi- minutes after the um, the polling booths had had closed. And I think he's going to get it a roundabout right. 
Oh, excellent. We won't ask what he predicted. We might wait, leave that for a, <laughs> in a couple of... Well, might we wait till the end of the section or perhaps you know, into the next part just to then hear what that is as more roles come in, just to see, if, see how he's travelling. Um, but we need to talk about a little bit more about some serious subjects when it comes to elections, what people otherwise talk about instead of the you know, um, health, wealth, and well, no, it's, it's health and education, the economy. And they do say it's the economy, stupid. Um, are we uh, the uh, state of excitement, or is this, uh, as, as it's written on my sheet, the sunset strip? How is New South Wales travelling? Are we actually going ahead as, a, as an economy? Or are people actually starting to feel the pinch? Is there, there going to be a reaction based on that to you know, the sale of the poles of wires, uh, the way that the economy is structured, uh, are the things that might be need to be done, you know, the ports working? How's that, how's that hanging, as it were, economic-wise in New South Wales? Well, if one was to uh, listen to and accept what Mike Beard says, uh, New South Wales is travelling fantastically well. Um, but, you know, economics is always relative, isn't it? And I, and I think it's probably fair to say that New South Wales is travelling reasonably well uh, relative to other states in the Federation. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, some people in New South Wales are certainly doing it tougher than others. Um, when you look at kind of aggregate economic statistics relative to other states, I think it would be fair to say that New South Wales is doing reasonably well. So in terms of population growth, for example, in terms of uh, retail spending, obviously the housing market is um, exploding through the roof, which is a good thing if you're a homeowner, probably not such a good thing if you're a renter or, or trying to buy a house. A <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think how one views the economy very much depends upon where one sits within the New South Wales economy. But certainly um, the New South Wales economy has been doing well enough uh, to be neutralised, if you like, as an issue which could damage uh, the beard government. Right. So it wouldn't be like as we see in WA with the slowdown in mining. They're seeing you know problems with how, well falling housing prices. People who bought in at the top, of course, are starting to feel the pinch on their mortgages. Yeah. So it's not having quite the same impact here in New South Wales. Clearly, not being a not having a manufacturing sector anymore, and not being a mining <laughs> state. Yeah, cer cer certainly not. I mean, um, you know, housing housing starts and construction um, have have you know surged ahead in New South Wales in probably over the last 12 months and that's certainly having something of a, a feel-good factor certainly for those people who are in the property market um, you know which does have an effect on on consumption for example but at the same time unemployment in New South Wales is is has been trending up over that same period of time so so once again you know, it depends mm. upon where one is situated in the New South Wales economy, how how these things impact on one's life and how they impact on politics. An American president did once say it's the economy, stupid, but is it? Uh, is it still an issue for voters? Mark, I'd like to bring you in um, to this discussion. How significant has the economy been as an issue in recent elections? It certainly hasn't been to the fore, so to speak, in this election. Uh, the Baird government has highlighted itself as, in effect, a great economic manager because there's been 150,000 new jobs created, with the implication that it was him that created them, as opposed to it being the growth of the New South Wales economy 
as if you can isolate the New South Wales economy from the rest of the nation. Uh, when in fact, of course, to go back to your earlier point, I mean, Sydney's GDP is worth a quarter of the nation's economic activity. So we're in a wealthy city, so to speak, not buffeted by those winds of the mining industry and so forth. Um, also, the government was the beneficiary of a particular cycle in the Australian and New South Wales economy. Timing was perfect in that, in that regards. Mm. Uh, but there are these problems that Lloyd and you have alluded to, which I think are in the background for a lot of people, principally housing affordability, which you mentioned earlier. And what was surprising was that the Labor Party had a policy to deal Yes. However, insufficiently, with housing affordability problems, uh, trying to get people's equity in houses with government assistance, and it never highlighted that. No. It never it highlighted that. Very interesting, because I actually was polled by Lonigan. I was one of the people polled by mm. Lonigan polling a week ago, and they actually talked about housing, and they actually talked about the two the two pol- sets of policies. Yeah. And yet, you know, I was sort of going, that's very interesting that I've been polled by this, but I'm not getting any advertising, no, no yeah. talk up on it. Yeah, the Liberals, really there. sorry, <coughs> the Liberals, their policy was, well, we need better information out there to help with housing, which is not dealing with the actual affordability <laughs> issues. Uh, so they downplayed what would be traditionally bread and butter issues of, mm. you know, rent or mortgage and that sort of thing. Costs were in the background of the issue, of course, of privatisation. So there's the illusion there. Uh, the distant illusion to the issues of the hip pocket nerve, so to speak. But there's been no bribes. As, as they're often called, right. to buy off voters, as as we often traditionally think of this issue of the hip pocket nerve. So the economy has only been sort of partly rearing its head, and there hasn't been this traditional idea of buying off voters. In fact, their, their concerns have been about the costs to the community, as you know, of the issue of privatisation and other such mm. things. Let's talk about privatisation. Yeah, let's talk about privatisation. <laughs> it reared its ugly head. <laughs> it has. And we can't not talk about it. Obviously, it's been one of the big questions of, you know, the polls and wires, the yes. question of privatisation. We've got a Premier, you know, who've, who's d- been determined to forge ahead despite the apparent unpopularity of the policy, um, kind of ridden on his own popularity with it, an opposition that... Uh, doesn't like it now, I think used to like it in the past. We've got Hmm. ex-premiers and prime ministers coming out in support of it. Uh, There seems to be a real consensus, at least amongst political and economic elites, that privatisation, even if they don't admit it, that privatisation, at least partial privatisation, is a good thing. But it doesn't look like the electorate wants to necessarily go along with that, even if there's a win uh, for for the Liberal government. What's going on? Why is there a disconnect between, or an apparent disconnect, is there one, between voters and, and policymakers on this issue? Lloyd? Um, well, I, I mean, if you look at the polling over, well, not just recent weeks, but recent months, I think uniformly those polls suggest that uh, there's been a, a majority of New South Wales voters who have been against privatisation. And um, that is, 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 is very clear. It's been very stable over a, a, you know, a relatively long period of time. Um, and I, I think it's likely to st- stay that way. But it, <coughs> unlike was the case in uh, Queensland, it hasn't 
that issue and that issue alone hasn't been sufficient to galvanise people um, in a way that would, you know, have the political impact um, that 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 we saw in Queensland. Um, and it seems that that bed is, um, you know, probably going going to prevail in in New South Wales. Why the disconnect between? Um, between voters and politicians or, or, mm. or, or political, political elites? I mean, I think that's a great question. It's one that I haven't got an answer for. Anybody? Anybody can answer? No. It is no. one of the big... I mean, I throw that out there because it yeah, is yeah. one of the really big questions about oh, well, how, do, how does that ever then get resolved? Do political elites just go their own way with it? What is it? You know, voters are obviously concerned about the impact of the economy on their lives, mm. whereas political elites seem to be and, and policymakers mm. seem to be more concerned with the operation of the economy. Mm. And they're two different approaches to policy. Uh, to go back to what Stuart raised earlier... Um, I think it highlights again the complexity of the relationship between voters and politicians, mm. that people have an array of issues upon which they decide one way or the other. And it's not as simple as the hip pocket nerve, mm. um, simplistic model of uh, a transaction. Mm. And that when it comes to balancing these things out, to go back to what we were saying earlier, at the end of a first term bad government, people are thinking he's probably safe to run the place but except for privatisation, mm. and Labor are not sufficiently there yet mm. for being an alternative. Mm. Yeah, uh, I mean, we can actually think back to 2007 with, with uh, was it Yammer's uh, claim that uh, we're more to do, mm. more work to do. Yeah. It's like, okay, yes, you're right, there's more things to do, we're travelling okay, um, yes, we'll give you another shot, but that pans out four years yes. later of yes. actually you managed to make a complete meal of it, yeah. you know, and we've got a whole lot of things we're really grumpy about. And in that respect, there was a crystallisation of the vote around several issues in the way that Lloyd was describing with Queensland. Mm. Privatisation was the galvanising mm. spot mm. for the dislike of, of Campbell Newman, unlike here where privatisation is not that galvanising issue. Mm. No. And of course, let's not forget that it was tried once before. I know, mm. by the Labor Party. Yeah. 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 Who and now who oppose knew? it. Oh, sorry. sorry. I was just going to say, the Liberals have been playing up, oh, there's some Labor people who actually dislike, who, who actually like privatisation. Mm. Well, we knew that during Yemen's time. Right, there was course, the split yeah. in the party yeah. over yeah. the whole issue. Yeah. There was a Premier fall. Yes. Yeah, along with the yeah. Treasurer. You know. Who would have known there were differences mm. in the Labor Party? Yes. Who then became, of course, the, the, that wonderful YouTube clip, uh, the downfall clip. Yes. Yes, which of course I think still think is one of the best of you know. Uh, what is the line about you know, um, Costa? That's not a that's not a speech. That's uh, Tourette's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, given all of that though, given that we've we've basically been told there's no Plan B, right? Mm, yeah. um, mm. Around privatisation, what are the implications then? Given that there is what seems to be significant community resistance, it hasn't translated into votes. What do you think the implication, or at least not in the, you know, it may translate into votes in the upper house, uh, yeah. in the in the legislative council, but it, where where does that leave us in terms of what may happen with privatisation? Are we going to see community mobilisation against it? Will the Liberal Party back away? Well, 
as, as you've kind of alluded to in, in the, the form of your question, I think what happens in the Legislative Council is going to be very important mm. in terms of you know how this plays out politically and, and whether or not there's smooth sailing for the, for the ongoing privatisation. Mm. I, I haven't been keeping an eye on the Legislative Council at all tonight, so I would not have a, a, a clue how that's travelling. We could look at a couple of thousand can... votes. That they <laughs> <got>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, um, so, but uh, I mean, presuming that um, the coalition, you know, uh, is able to, to marshal the, the 21 votes or uh, tw- um, that, that they need in the in the legislative council, I think privatisation will go ahead, and it will, um, you know, there will be um, there will be residues of uh, community resistance to it, but. I don't think there'll be the sort of campaign that could, you know, effectively turn that mm. around. I just can't see it. Mm. I just can't see it. Mark? I think it'll go ahead, as Lloyd says. I think there's <clears throat> a short window of opportunity for the Baird government in relation to people's patience on the issue and the effectiveness of using the proceeds to solve the transport problems, which we know are a prime political issue yeah. in in Sydney. And time is on the side of the likes of Fred Nile and others if they get the balance of power. And it's not on the side of the government. And Fred presumably will strike a bargain, which may affect the sale price. Now, in that respect, <clears throat> Baird would be in a bit of a problem of not getting the amount of money that he needs for Mm. his program. Uh, And the longer that the negotiations go on, the less time for putting through his infrastructure project to solve the transport problems, which will be Mm. judged at the 2019 election. So that's the key then, isn't it? Is how he gets, it's not just the sale, it's what it, if he's able to get it through, how long it takes and what he's then able to get through in terms of infrastructure. And all the other flow-ons in terms of urban development. What's going to happen with all the apartments uh, surrounding West Connects? What about the transport options related to that? Uh, there's a range of things that have been suppressed mm. in public information. Yes. That's all going to spill out in the future. That's a way for really spoiling yeah. Baird's party, I think, in the future. Yeah, and I, I, I think also the way, the way in which the public debate has been structured around privatisation, there's been this figure of $20 billion. And so much else of what the coalition wants to do presupposes that they're going to get $20 billion mm. for the, for the um, sale of the transmission and, and distribution network. Now, it's not at all clear to me that um, they will get $20 billion. I, I mean, um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about... Um, those assets kind of losing value o- over time. Now, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but losing value over over time because of, um, you know, shifts to, to renewable energy and, and so forth and the falls in demand for ele- electricity. So um, whether or not they're able to get that $20 billion, I'm not sure. And if they weren't to get that, a lot of the infrastructure... Um, Projects which assume that they're going to get that it would it would seem to be um, would be in would be in jeopardy. Um, yeah, 
And $5 billion of that $20 billion is supposed to come from interest on the $13 billion gain through selling poles and wires. Right. Now, uh, that's going to be an interesting investment yeah. to see whether it turns out that way. Mm. And the $2 billion from the federal government for its uh, asset recycling which apparently needs legislation to be passed. Yes. Ah, so and then we're then we're back to the federal, yes. state relationships, yes. uh, which is you know something that has, you know, it reared its head a few times uh, during the campaign. And, and the Baird government is going to find increasing financial difficulties mm. with the Abbott's budget, which cut back what fifty-five billion dollars in grants to the states for health yeah. and education. Yeah. Now, that's something that's going to really narrow Baird's options. Yes. Yeah, it's going to... Well, that's right. And it kind of takes us to that bigger question of the other kind of economic and policy issues that were raised um, during the campaign. And that's one of the big ones, isn't it? The GST, mm. the grants to the states. Who's going to make the first jump to propose yeah. an increase in the GST? GST yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the difficulty of doing that when you've got state uh, and territory governments and a, and a federal government that are at odds. I mean, it's a yes. hard call yes. anyway. Yeah. We need to talk. Well, it's, it's coming up to what? It's getting close to 20 past, uh, it was about 19 past eight. We need to talk about some of the results, where we're at with some of the um, uh, key results. Uh, we talked about Newtown and we talked about um, uh, Balmain a little bit earlier. Do we have any updates? Are they firming as actual green winds? Yes, yeah, it looks like the Greens have retained uh, Balmain and Newtown. Uh, at the moment, it looks like there has been a swing to the Greens on preferences in um, Newtown, but we don't know how big. And in Balmain, we don't really have much in the way of preferences, but when I look at it, it seems like um, Jamie Parker has gained... So so the Liberal vote has gone down, and there was also a chunk of Clovermore votes that were moved in, so effectively ah. that's a swing against Clovermore. I mean, it's hard to get those votes when you're not on the ballot. Um, but while both Verity, uh, the Labor candidate Verity Firth and the Greens candidate Jamie Parker both have increased their vote, Jamie Parker has increased his vote by about 5% more. Wow. So considering he has a margin of about 3%, um, it seems hard to imagine that he won't get enough preferences to win on those numbers. Wow. So are there any other interesting seats? I've been flicking through there, and one of the one of the seats that uh, popped out and made my eyes stand up was, in fact, um, Auburn. Um, of course, Luke Foley's seat, mm-hmm. uh, expected there, uh, sitting on 7.2. A little earlier, they actually had it as a, a likely retain because in some of the booths had been a swing to the libs. Now, overall, mm-hmm. there's still only a small swing, but... And do we have any other, which you, which you can't really say is a, um, a great thing for a, uh, a, a the leader of the opposition to only have a small swing to or a small swing against them when the rest of the seats seem to be uh, following along as they perhaps should. Uh, we've talked about um, also, was it Blacktown with John Robertson as a, as a former leader as well? Yeah, so there's a... There's, um, there's a few seats that uh, Labor has gained. Uh, they've they've and they're all seats that they held before the last election. Um, the only one that looks like it could possibly be a gain is Ballina, a seat that they that they haven't held. But at the moment, they're behind the Greens in Ballina and in Lismore. Um, but seats that they've gained includes Blue Mountains and Granville, we talked about earlier. They've gained Campbelltown, Londonderry. Macquarie Fields is a notional gain, but that, uh, that was Labour-held. Um, uh, Maitland and Port Stephens in the Hunter. They've regained Rockdale, Strathfield, which is where Jody Mackay was running. 
and Swansea and Wyong on the central coast, Lake Macquarie yeah. area. Which, we, so which was, in some respects, expected to go. The, yes. The, the central so, coast swing so of seats. We'd see a, a handful of seats in that list. I count five seats in that list that were ICAC affected. Mm-hmm. Um, Ma- oh, sorry, not Maitland. So four seats that uh, you'd have to say were affected by ICAC. And uh, there are then the two seats of Ballina and Lismore that could be won by the Greens, could be won by Labor. But, um, and could be won by the Nationals. They're really <laughs> the only seats that the coalition uh, held before the last election that are in any doubt. What about Lakemba? Have you got any figures on Lakemba? Ah, Lakemba. Well, uh, because you've got the two Muslim candidates standing against each other for the Labor and Liberal Party. And, and, and there's a swing of about 11% to Labor. Okay. So okay. that's solid. It's um, not... not it's about average, really. Okay. Maybe so. I ask as average. well because the Lebanese Muslim Association came out during the week uh, against Foley in oh. in his seat, but in favour of Jihad Deep right. in the Great Canberra. name. Fantastic yes. name. Yes. I, I noted as well, Camera Matter, which actually has uh, a Vietnamese-born um, female candidate for the Liberal Party, has actually had a 17%, I think 17% swing to, to the Labour Party. Uh, they were sitting on a slight margin before, but it's actually a big swing back to the Labor Party. But I think that we're about to go to a station announcement. Yes, but before we do that, I do want to just say thank you to both Lloyd and Mark for joining us uh, tonight on Election Nerds and our New South Wales 2015 election special. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Um, We're going to take a very short break and come back with Associate Professor James Goodman. You are listening to The Election Nerds, coming to you live from the 2SER studios in Sydney and from across the community radio network. It's election day in New South Wales and we're bringing you live coverage with experts in policy and politics from across New South Wales universities. After this short break, we'll return with more results and discussion. And you're back with us again. Ha! <laughs> How quick was that? Uh, and we have a new guest. So I'm Dr. Stuart Jackson. I'm joined with my co-host, Dr. Amanda Elliott. You're listening to the Election Nerds New South Wales Election Special. Associate Professor James Goodman. Uh, Welcome. Good evening. good evening. You're a new guest for us, which is fantastic. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, we're going to talk about the environment. Um, as they say, environment, environment. I can't quite do that, that sort of accent, environishment, you know. Where has the environment been? Now, we've talked about on the show tonight the economy and some of the travails of that. There's been some other issues. But has the environment actually been an issue in this state election? Uh, I think so, yes. yes. Uh, despite the best efforts of the bad government, especially to try to keep it off the agenda, it's been a, a burning issue uh, that, that won't go away. Um, so they tried to keep... CSG off the agenda by you know cancelling a few li- buying back a few licenses at great yes. cost actually, um, uh, and of course CSG hasn't gone away as as we've seen there's a bit of a move against the nationals in yes. in, uh, in regional areas, um, and uh, and then they tried to keep coal mining off the agenda by delaying their uh, policy on the 16 new mines up in the Upper Hunter Some of the after lecture m- monster uh, sites that are going to be dug up there, up there as well At, absolutely yeah and extensions of existing uh, yeah it's a huge um, development for the Upper Hunter and that's been delayed till after the election um, and it's interesting they've kind of you know tailored their 20 billion dollar um, you know um, cash spend mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. 
to concerns around public transport, and that 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 did interest me. That a large proportion of the spend is to go to public transport rather than simply roads, uh, yes. which is actually quite an important development. Um, so there's been some sort of, in a sense, inoculation of the green agenda uh, by uh, the government, and of course, uh, 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 Labour of well, as well have been have have been do, have been doing much the same thing. Yeah. So have we been seeing much interaction between state and federal issues, perhaps? Well, again, that's been kept quiet as well. Um, there's been this shift to what's called the one-stop shop, where yes. basically uh, uh, environmental approvals of big mines, essentially, and CSG as well, uh, will move from the federal level to solely the New South Wales level. So there'll be, there'll be no uh, stage at which large mining proposals go up to the federal level for approval. Um, so it all comes down to New South Wales. And again, that... Uh, has been out for discussion and its discussion about it has closed uh, in February and they haven't moved on it for obvious right. reasons and yes. when it comes to the uh, you know if they get government again obviously uh, we will have a much more streamlined uh, environmental approvals process for mining in, in New South Wales in fact they to be fair to them they did signal in their uh, in their manifesto or in their announcements around the election that they would um, uh, ensure that uh, mines were approved more quickly than they currently are. Oh, right. But, but that's, that's, one of the, which is, that's one of the chink, that's one of the, uh, a little bit of honesty. <laughs> nice to get a grain of honesty. Yeah. What about those issues, debates, things that have been, that had been issues over the last few years, but seem to have sunk off the, the uh, radar as it were. I mean, I've got a couple here. Hunting in parks. Mm. Um, Sharks, which have been happily nibbling on the person here and there, and a colleague of, of ours. Uh, oh, it's, Chris, it's a bit uh, <laughs> not, not to mind, is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, a colleague of ours, Dr. Chris Neff, of course, the shark guy, who uh-huh. keeps on appearing every time there's uh, some d- debate around policy on sharks. Mm. And, of course, bushfires, which have affected New South Wales in the past, have been a key issue. Missing in action? Not there? Mm. Well, there are other issues as well that just disappeared off the agenda, even though we've been talking about them for four years. I think the I don't not sure that the um, the hunting one. I think it seems to have affected some. I've heard it had a, it's still having an impact. Say, for instance, in the oh. blue mount, the blue mountains. Uh, of course, what the government did there was to try to um, science its critics by saying that the uh, that the sh- that the um, huntsman, as it were, would be uh, closely supervised, <laughs> so it's all yes. okay. But <laughs> a very it was, royal. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a, quite a comic kind of. But anyway, but, uh, the bushfire one. Uh, uh, it's interesting that it was. It's a couple of years ago now, the terrible bushfires in the Blue Mountains. And, uh, you know, at the time, I think it was Adam Bant, dared, dared to say that this might have something to do with climate change. And he was shouted down uh, as, as bringing politics into this, uh, this terrible tragedy, which, of course, it was. But it was also to do with climate change, undeniably. Um, so, uh, so I think there's been a, a, a desperate desire not, uh, you know, to prevent the dots from being joined, you know, right. <laughs> as it were. To, so on bushfires, to keep it as a matter of, you know, whether you can chop down trees or within 10 metres of your property. I think that was the policy they brought yes. in. And that's, that, yes. th- th- that's what it becomes. And, and about, a move to, yeah. to make safer houses and yeah. perhaps have a bunker in your backyard and whether that's safe or not, you know, it's quite a lot of That's right, thing. that's right. Yeah. And, uh, and keeping, and, in other words, keeping, stopping us from thinking about climate yeah. change in relation to bushfires. I think mm. that's, that's a really important priority for them. Um, and, um, and really the Greens were the only ones uh, daring to, uh, to make the obvious point on that. 
There is one other point, of course, we, we, st- we started touching on it, which is to do with CSGs and coal licences. Um, I wanted to just nail, nail down the party's positions uh, and then think about We talked a little bit earlier about uh, economics in our previous discussions and how the economy hasn't figured in the way that we otherwise might have expected it. The coal mines have always been, well, certainly by the federal government, but also at various times by state governments, touted as, oh, it's an economic benefit. There'll be lots of coal mines and coal miners and etc. Are these uh, actually important issues? Do you think they've had any impact on the way that people perceive them or vote on them? Mm. I think the way people perceive and the reality is different. Um, the way they've been talked about by the proponents of companies and governments and so on is, is in terms of the enormous bonanza there is to come from CSG in terms of jobs and, uh, and income, royalty income and so on to the state um, and likewise for coal. The truth is, of course, uh, very few employees um, and, uh, and maybe royalties, but really... And the scheme of things not a great deal. I mean, the whole coal industry provides about 2% of New South Wales government revenue. So, you know, royalty question is really quite, you know, r- revenue when you include it, when you include, when it's, a, it's 2% of all New South Wales government r- revenue it, uh, comes from... Um, Mommy, you'd think poles and wires brought in. As yeah. <laughs> so it, 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 it's negligible, really, in the scheme of things. But it's talked up, of course. Um, and... Um, and we must always remember that both for coal and CSG, we're talking about exports. Yes. Uh, you know, um, so we're not really talking about energy security for New South Wales. It's all about exports uh, and uh, and and making money out of that for the companies and uh, and you know, uh, marginally, as I say, for New South Wales government in terms of royalties. That's really what the story. Wow. Yeah. So economically, then, it's not actually a big player yet. Uh, we, we've had a, well. We know that CSG has been impacting. We've been talking a little earlier about the effect in Ballina and mm-hmm. Small. Um, we know that it's it potentially affecting the Upper Hunter, where some of the you know, Maitland, Cedar Maitland, which has had a big swing. Mm. So it's certainly affecting people on the ground. But I suppose my concern, or not concern, but my interest is: is is it affecting anybody else? Is it actually mm. impinging upon their minds about yeah. it's going to affect me? Yeah, it's starting to crack. I think it's what's interesting. Uh, the story's starting to. People are starting no longer to believe the, the uh, you know the myth uh, that this is all good for us that, that that you know mining is good for us and so on, drilling is good for us, um, and of course it's where uh, where people are most directly affected is is where that begins, um, but it's this, it is actually sort of migrating to the cities a bit now. I think you know particularly with the threat of CSG uh, <laughs> just down the road from here in the inner west mm-hmm. I think that that helped people think a bit about yes. uh, about I think it crystallised people brought it home yes. a bit brought it home a bit yeah. <laughs> well that's going to be in my backyard yeah that's yeah. right yeah so the backyard sort of comes yeah. closer but the um, I think that there's that the local impacts um, but I think again um, there are bigger economic impacts there's been you know there was a scare campaign run by the gas industry mm. a little while back to try to claim that oh you know if CSG was stopped then gas prices would rise uh, but then, of course, it's all exported, so it's all <laughs> yeah. yes. so it's to- total irrelevant. Um, uh, and uh, and the wider story, of course, is the um, is that um, is that uh, uh, coal and coal seam gas exports push up the Australian dollar, and that damages uh, employment elsewhere in the New South Wales economy. Right, Amanda. 
I think we're moving to, in fact, we have a little discussion now about what we're going to move to next. <laughs> well, I want to say thank you to James, first of all. Thank you very much, James. That was, I think, you know, that question of the environment that it's still, I mean, it, it's been there but not there, mm. you know. I mean, I think yeah. it's it's one that um, hasn't been focused on enough, obviously, no. but but still has had an uh, obvious ten, impact ten years on ago, Ten, 15 years ago, we yeah. talked about the environment endlessly and somehow it's 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 all there but we're not actually somehow mm. grappling yeah, with it again. Yeah. Mm. And I think your point about you know it seems to me that there are some quite obvious attempts to stop us from connecting the dots mm. and mm. and I you know I think they're things to pay attention to and perhaps uh, have a bit of a think about in future shows. So thank you James. No problem. Um, in the third of our 2015 international election reviews Dr Peter Chen uh, talks to Dr Robert McNeil from the Department of Government at the University of Sydney about the upcoming Canadian national election. So the Canadian election is coming up on the 19th of October and uh, long-term incumbent Stephen Harper is up against Justin Trudeau. Harper's been the Prime Minister for nine years now, but the opinion poll says it's going to be pretty close. Before we talk about the likely uh, outcome of that election, I was just wondering, this relatively long period of incumbency for Harper, is that normal in Canada? It is, yes, historically. Uh, if he wins this election, he'll be the first person since Trudeau to have won four consecutive elections. But there is generally a history of multiple terms, usually eight years. If he can get this one and hold on to it for two years or so, which is, it looks like it'll be a minority and that's what they tend to do, he'll be the first one to have done more than a decade uh, since Trudeau in the 60s and 70s. And uh, I noticed you mentioning Trudeau, that's Pierre Trudeau. Now, he is Justin Trudeau's father, is that correct? He is indeed, yes. So this is a political dynasty, is that also a normal sort of thing in Canadian politics? It is not. No, this, is, this would be the first of that, uh, of that sort. So I see that there's relatively close polling between Harper's party, the Conservatives, and Trudeau's party, the Liberal Party. Is it going to be a very close election? This, this will be one of the closest elections in, in perhaps all of Canadian history. Um, this is the first election, really, in all of Canadian history that you have two parties that are seriously contesting for government, which are sharing the exact same part of the political spectrum. You've never had two center-left parties uh, making a serious go at forming a government. Prior to this, prior to 2011, the New Democrats had always been a more avowedly left, pro-labor, pro-welfare state party who just kind of marginally uh, tried for seats in the parliament to get their issues uh, on the agenda. Uh, now they are a serious, uh, they're the official opposition and they're going to make a serious go at forming the government. The issue is that they share almost the exact same uh, political platform as the Liberal Party. So there's a, a, a in a first-past-the-post system, that is a that is a very bad thing, potentially, um, and it gives Harper the opportunity with about 31% approval ratings to form another government. So this has been an ongoing problem for Canadian politics. The, the Liberals and the NDP, the New yeah. Democrats, have had this sort of problem where essentially they fight these three-cornered contests. Uh, Australia, we resolved this using a preferential system. Indeed. Why have those two parties never got together? Is it personal or is it structural? It, it would tend to be a case of organizational behavior, I think. Um, the two parties are very much, both have very, very long histories. The Liberal Party dates back to the 1860s, and the New Democrats date back to the CCF in the 1940s. Um, so very, very proud traditions there. 
And even some past liberal prime ministers like Jean Chrétien have said that it's time now that the two parties form a, a single coalition, a liberal democratic party as it were. But there's been a lot of resistance from both camps from this. This, this election, if it does anything, it should really be that moment where a decision is made what will happen. This has happened on the right in Canada many times. Uh, the progressive conservatives and the Canadian alliance shared a very similar part of the spectrum before and were forced to form a coalition given that the Liberals continually formed uh, majority governments throughout the 90s um, and it was impossible for them to make any headway. So that will be one of the major outcomes of this election. So as one of our experts on Canadian politics here at the University of Sydney, what are the issues that you're going to be watching in the lead-up to the election in October? I, I think what will be very interesting is to see how Harper will try to eke this one out with such low uh, approval ratings. He has been a perennially unpopular Prime Minister, never really getting above uh, about 30% approval ratings. So the, the question in, in my mind is, is how he intends to do this. And what we're seeing now is a, a stark shift in the uh, rhetoric that you're seeing from that camp from one of restraint and trying to rein in government spending to uh, one now that, that uh, Canada is moving towards surplus governments uh, of large giveaways from the government. So a strategy of going after targeted communities and targeting them with tax cuts for, for businesses, for retirement funds, for that kind of thing, for child care. Um, it, it, it's basically turning into a, an everybody-gets-money kind of a, a electoral strategy, which is very interesting from this government. You would, would not have expected that from Harper in the past. It's going to make it very difficult for Trudeau's Liberals and Mulcair's NDP to make any traction when you have a government, a conservative government, that is, is, is really campaigning to the left. Dr. McNeil, thank you very much. No problem. You are listening to The Election Nerds, coming to you live from the 2SER studios in Sydney and from across the community radio network. It's Election Day in New South Wales and we're bringing you live coverage with experts in policy and politics from across New South Wales universities. After this short break, we'll return with more results and discussion. Ben. Sorry, you're, you're back with, uh, I was about to say, and we'll throw to Ben for some results. You're back with the uh, New, South Wales, New South Wales election special with the election nerds. Uh, I'm Dr. Stuart Jackson. Uh, I'm getting a little afraid. Uh, <laughs> I'm here with the honorary doctor. Um, we've made him an honorary. It's our honorary. No one else's. Uh, ben Rowie. To tell us a few of the results, tell us where are we at? What's the overall swing? Where, do we, where are we sitting at the moment? So on primary votes, Labor is up about just under 9%. Um, and the coalition collectively is down about 5.5%, and the Greens vote is about steady, which is interesting considering what's going on in some of these key seats. And at the moment, Labor's on about 33. They might end up on about 36. So they're basically, considering they got 20 at the last election, they need 47 to form government. They've gotten just a little bit over halfway to winning those seats back to form government. And what did I say at the beginning of this show when I said it'd be around 34 well, I feel vindicated. <laughs> well, um, it's not a huge swing. No. It's not. It's not a huge swing. But that said, uh, I think it will be quite interesting to see how this pans out in terms of Tony Abbott uh, and the rest. Were there any particular seats? I know you've got your map there. You can, sh- you can actually talk us through some of the seats that have fallen. Does it have a pattern attached to it? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, at the moment, apart from Gosford, which uh, so Gosford, one of the ICAC affected seats, twelve percent margin, uh, Labor's won that, and they're kind of just ahead in the entrance, which is almost exactly the same, mm. same region, same effect, same margin, basically. Um, but beyond that, and they've retained Charlestown, which was a 9.2% um, margin, which they won at a by-election. But beyond that, pretty much every other seat that they've managed to win is below a 7% margin. So they've won seats like Campbelltown, Strathfield, Blue Mountains, Londonderry, Maitland, Wyong, Granville, all those kind of seats. Um, Failed to win East Hills. So this is the interesting thing. There are two seats in that area that we, we've gotten very few figures from Prospect, but Prospect will probably fall in line with those other seats. But East Hills and Oatley. Um, neighbouring seats, southern Sydney seats, as we were discussing earlier. Um, mm. East Hills was held by a 0.2% margin. I don't think anyone imagined that the Liberal Party could retain that seat considering the abnormality of the last election. Mm. But at the moment, it looks like they've won it with a swing. You, you, they'd have to get a swing um, because they basically had no margin. And in Oatley, 3.8%. And in that seat, they have gained a 3.3% swing towards them. There you go. So it's not an across-the-board swing against well, the incumbent at I wonder, all. I wonder if it's something to do with those southern electorates. Something's going on there that perhaps we're not privy to. Perhaps if we'd been down there all day handing out, we'd have mm. actually got a sense of the electorate. And in a neighbouring seat of Holsworthy as well, the swing to Labor was much smaller than expected. Mm. And before Election Day, all of the natural factors suggested Labor should be winning Holsworthy, but everything we heard suggested Labor didn't think they could win. So these are all seats that border the Georges River, that kind of area. Something's in the water, I think, yeah. Amanda. Uh, ben, I wonder if you can, if there's anything we know about the upper house. We have 0% counted. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll leave it at that. But so in nothing. terms of what we should be looking for, um, I think the biggest issue is electricity privatisation. The The... Government can't rely on the shooters. They probably can rely on the CDP to get it through, the Fred Niles Christian Democrats. Um, the CDP and the, sh and the government together hold 12 seats that aren't up for election. So to get to a majority of 22, they need to win another 10. If you assume Fred Niles is re-elected, the uh, Liberal National Coalition needs to win nine seats, which equates to about 39 to 40% of the vote. So if they can get 39 to 40% of the primary vote, then they probably have enough seats to govern... Well, on this particular issue, governed with Fred Nile, but more generally, basically they would be able to choose between the two right-wing minor parties. And at the moment, they are on uh, 60, sorry, 45.7%, uh, and they need about 40% in the upper house. So it seems very likely that will happen, and the government's hand in the upper house will be significantly strengthened. Mm. Well, I think we should... On that note. Yeah, continue that conversation about the upper house. Uh, Stephen uh, Mills is joining us, Dr Stephen Mills from the Graduate School of Government. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Amanda. How are you? Pretty good, thank you. How's your election day? We don't have you in the studio. We have you on a, on a line, but uh, have you enjoyed your election day? Uh, I have enjoyed my election day and my pre-polling election days as well. And uh, the whole celebration of democracy <laughs> continues over a fortnight now. And I'm having a very nice election night actually planted in front of the TV. I, I thought oh. you were going to say it was being celebrated over a bottle of red or something. <laughs> no, no, nothing nearly as exciting as that, Stuart. I'm doing radio tonight with you guys. So I'm... Uh, I'm crystal clear. Well, Stephen, the Upper House has come up a lot in our discussions tonight. You might have just heard um, Ben uh, giving his thoughts about it. It provoked a lot of interest in the last parliament as well. Why is that the case? Can you give us a bit of context? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, Amanda? Because on, on, on election night, it's the 
kind of it's always the like the second class or the poor cousin or something like that. Yes. They don't count any votes, and you never hear about it, and it's terribly complicated um, statewide rather than uh, electorate basis. So, so, so it is a bit uh, opaque what's actually happening. Uh, but obviously, and as Ben was just saying, it's critically important uh, in any. Um, bicameral system and uh, right now it's going to be uh, a hugely important uh, issue for Mike Baird as to whether he can translate this pretty good win that he's had in the lower house whether that's also going to translate into the upper house and in terms of votes on the board we I mean we, we literally do not know so we've got to kind of extrapolate from well they've done well in the lower house that'll probably translate to the upper house but in terms of seats we don't know and then as always happens with upper houses, uh, the Senate and with the New South Wales Legislative Council, uh, you've got the uh, real opportunity uh, in a statewide election for small parties to mm. get up to um, maybe only have a, a percent or less of the primary vote, but still to get uh, home on preferences. And that can uh, signal the success or failure of um, major legislative reform, as we're seeing with the Abbott budget in the Senate, and you know what's going to be the, the situation with privatisation of electricity assets in the upper house with the, the bed re-election. So, Stephen, let me ask: What does the upcoming, oh, so the incoming government, which of course will be the, the Baird um, Liberal National Coalition government, what will they want to get out of the the upper house vote? What are they actually looking at, and what are they actually wanting to see there? Well, in a sense, uh, in terms of its makeup, it's it, it's out of their hands again. As Ben was saying, you know, will the Christian Democrats um, uh, return? Will the Shooters and Fishers return? Big question: Will the no land tax party be in there? So, so certainly the government over the ensuing, you know, uh, week and more will certainly be watching this vote uh, very carefully, and they'll be trying to work out whether or not they can um, mark some of these uh, minor parties down as uh, as being uh, pro the asset sale uh, legislation when it uh, when it emerges. It's really important, I think, for Mike Baird now to start that negotiation, to start that conversation with the upper house. Uh, he's got to be pretty strong in that conversation. He's just had a big election win uh, and he will be able to talk mandate. He'll be able to talk ma mandate for assets and so that's going to be his opening uh, conversation with uh, whatever the composition is of the new upper house. I mean, how much pushback, though, can he expect, Stephen? I'm, you know, this talk about mandates, particularly one of our previous guests, I think Annika, brought up that question of, of the split ticket voting one way, you know, in one house and another way in another house. And, and you know, I mean, how likely is that in, in this election? But also what does that suggest about, uh, you know, the mandate? I think... Uh I understand where Annika is coming from, and there is certainly evidence uh, that voters can say yes to. In this circumstance, they may may be saying yes to Mike Beard. We like the look of you. You know, go again, son. But that privatisation thing, no, we 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 don't support you on that, and we will vote perhaps Labor or Green or some minor party. So splitting tickets. But the thing with the the problem with that thesis, Amanda, in this case, uh, is we don't know the extent of it, mm. and it certainly implies a highly strategic voter, of whom there are 
probably some, but how widespread is that amongst the New South Wales electorate? How many people are, are really going through the you know, internal conversation that we're talking about here of, of liking the government but opposing privatisation and then finding a party that um, you know, has campaigned against privatisation? It's, it's, to me, it's not going to be as likely as finding a, uh, a mandate argument. In other words, Baird saying, look, this is what my election promise, uh, my election commitments are. Let's go and do it. That's, I, I don't actually disagree with you um, there. I just wanted to pick up, though, Stephen, on the question of the, the strategic voter. We do have people who are not used to strategic voting. It's, this, this isn't uh, first-past-the-post, which can actually um, end up with a highly uh, trained electorate that actually understands how to do strategic voting, i.e., you know, your seat's not going to be won. Mm. I was actually talking to um, Ben, actually, about uh, a by-election in New Zealand where Winston Peters has stormed home and the Labor Party was reduced to, you know, 4.5%. There, it would have been, OK, who's going to win? This is amongst Labor voters and going, well... Uh, we, we don't want the Nationals to win. Winston might win. He's going to create havoc. We'll actually vote for him. And we know it happens in the UK as well. Uh, I wonder, though, if we haven't got a residual uh, element of it, certainly amongst the Liberal Party members, who might have once been members of, say, the Democrats, who we did see split-ticket voting, where you might see um, you know, 6% in the, the lower house and 10% for them in the same district in the upper house, where something is happening. It might be... A, Conservative voter who goes, yeah, I like these guys, but it's insurance policy time. Yeah, okay. So if we're thinking of a of a of a voter Stewie who might be yeah a former Australian Democrat voter, but if but the counter argument to that again would be, look, if they don't like privatisation, but they have just voted for a Liberal candidate in the lower house, you know, how much don't they like it? Um, I think also, um, you know, as we're thinking strategic voters as well, obviously, uh, and I'm not sure if you've gone into the any of the complexities of optional preferences, but it's pretty hard to be uh, precise uh, in interpreting what voters are doing when, uh, when there are so many uh, ways of expressing their vote, above the line, below the line, optional preference, full preference, and so forth. So, so look, I, I certainly think strategic voting happens. There's, there's good evidence that it does. In this case, it's still unclear how widespread it is. And anyway, you, you know, again, in terms of practical politics and what's going to happen uh, next week, Baird will certainly be making a mandate argument uh, based on his lower house result. And I think he's got... Um, some claim to to do that and to uh, to do it stronger. We we might have some disagreements on that, but we've had those before, (laughs) and that's fine. I I was actually just wanting to just quickly uh, quickly just look at those lower lower house results and see if we can't extrapolate. The reason I'm saying that is that I was looking at the list that's on the ABC site, which actually talks about the the parties that have contested 93 seats. So no land tax party is polled 1.9%. Which surely should be putting them close to winning an upper house seat. You would think so, yeah. Which is, well, I don't know how, how what, what it fills you with, but it fills me with a certain amount of well. This is going to be interesting, and the Christian Democrats on three point one, which again might might signal the same. Uh, well, I- I- exactly. Well, we don't know where Fred Nile uh, stands on uh, asset sales, as I understand it. Although he's kind of regarded as more likely, I think, to support uh, the Baird government. Um, yeah. Look, Stewie, I think there's another interesting way of approaching this question as well. Um, 
So we know that the coalition will advocate now for legisl- uh, for uh, asset sales, and we're having a conversation about some of these microscopic parties which get um, you know single-digit votes. What about the Labor Party? Um, I excellent said, question. They, actually, well, they've said uh, they have said that they will oppose this in the upper house. I think. You know, uh, what's Mike Baird's challenge? Well, let's just talk for a second about what Luke Foley's challenge is. And I think it's actually going to be a real test of Luke Foley's leadership, how he handles this issue. Um, uh, Michael Egan, the former Labor Treasurer, was just interviewed on uh, ABC TV in its uh, coverage. And and he has already um, issued a warning to Foley saying, look, just be very careful. Don't try to govern from the upper house. Yes, uh, and I think there's a you know long-standing kind of political wisdom about that. Uh, one day, perhaps uh, Luke Foley will be premier. He may not control the upper house. Does he want to have you know his future initiative stymied uh, by the upper house? I just wonder how Labor is going to handle this. I mean, I'm not saying that they're going to support the privatisation, but I just wonder if they're going to negotiate, if they're going to um, do a deal which would obviously put out of question any uh, of the role of the minor parties, or for that matter, of the Greens. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time, Stephen. It's been really great having you on tonight. Um, We're actually going to now go to uh, the final results wrap-up with uh, Ben. So thanks heaps for your time there, Stephen. Absolute pleasure, Stewie. We'll be in the studio next time. Cheers, man. Thank you. But that does mean we are going to go to Ben. Um, ben, we need to get the final results wrap. Tell us where we're at. What's happening out there? Okay, so <clears throat> the coalition has been re-elected uh, with a reduced majority, but Labor is still a long way away from forming the next government. Uh, Labor has gained a number of seats in the Central Coast um, Hunter region. Pretty much every seat that Labor lost at the last election they've won back. The only one in doubt at the moment is the entrance, where Labor is leading. Uh, if Labor wins the entrance, they'll have swept back and uh, the only seat. And in fact, they have won Port Stephens, which was from four years before that <coughs> as well. And that will mean all the ICAC-affected seats will have swapped, as well as the one Central Coast Liberal MP who wasn't affected by ICAC. In Sydney, the picture is much different. Uh, Labor has gained a smattering of seats, but there's other ones they haven't, some because they're on higher margins and some on really low margins. Labor has also fallen short in Monero, where Steve Wan, who was a member of the upper... Mm. was a member of the lower house, moved to the upper house, resigned from the upper house to run for the lower house. He's lost... That means both Labor MPs who tried to gain seats by leaving the upper house have lost. Penny Sharp in Newtown. Other than Luke Foley. Yes, how's Luke, how's Luke going? Luke, Luke did succeed. <laughs> As does Melinda Pavey, a national who ran on the North Coast. Um, and apart from that, the seats that I think are in doubt at the moment, Prospect looks like Labor has won, but for some reason a very small vote has been counted there. Um there's the entrance, which Labor was likely to win, and then the two that are still in play are Ballina and Lismore, which are now both... The Greens are still well ahead of Labor, and it looks like the Greens will probably stay ahead of Labor, and in Ballina, the Greens are only a few percent behind um, the Nationals. It looks likely to me that the Greens will win Ballina, um, and they could also win um, Lismore, but we'd have to see how the Labor preferences flow and how those final few booths come in. So just clarify for me, how many green seats is that? Are you are you making a prediction <laughs> Is that a prediction? That two seems to like four. a lot of Two green to four seats, greens right. in the lower house. Yeah. So that would uh, actually place the greens better than the Victorian greens. Wow, wouldn't that be nice? Um, the upper house, we don't have the numbers. Uh, would you 
want to chance your hand on um, what we've seen in the lower house as to whether that will be repeated, notwithstanding the, the discussion we've just <coughs> had over strategic voting? Yeah, so um, three minor parties, I think, have a chance. The Shooters, who don't run in the lower house. Yep. The Christian Democrats, who got enough of the lower house vote to win. And no land tax, who didn't quite get enough, but are close enough that you could imagine them winning. The Greens will have won two seats, could win a third. Labor will win a decent number more than last time, but not anywhere near enough to be um, to not go backwards. Labor will still have lost seats compared to the 2007 election, and it looks likely that the Liberals will be in a position to have a majority with Fred Nile. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, we should thank all our guests, actually, tonight. Um, Dr Peter John Chen, Department of Government. Dr Lloyd Cox, Department of Modern History, Politics and International Relations. Oh, man, with the longest... Yeah, yeah, we're going to have a lot of titles here. Um, Macquarie University Associate Professor James Goodman of the Social Inquiry Program, UTS. Dr Anika Gallia, Dr Robert McNeil, Dr Gil Merrim. Uh, all of the <coughs> Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney, Dr Stephen Mills from the Graduate School of Government, University of Sydney, um, Dr Mark Rolfe from the School of Social Sciences at UNSW, uh, Professor Colin White from the Department of Government and International Relations, and our own honorary doctor, Dr Ben Rowie. Um, I'm Dr Stuart Jackson, you're Dr Amanda Elliott. I am indeed. I'd also like to thank our live volunteer show tweeter, Erica, who's been doing a terrific job. She's an undergraduate student in politics from Sydney University. Remember to tweet out our podcast page, www.electionnerds.info, using the hashtag electionnerds to win a copy of From Car to Keneally, autographed by editors and contributors alike. You've been listening to the Election Nerds 2015 New South Wales Election Special, recorded and broadcast live from the studios of 2SCR Radio in Sydney. The Election Nerds podcast is available on iTunes and you can also find it on our show page.